Welcome, everyone, to Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to explain and tackle some of the greatest challenges that come up around AI and related technologies. Today, we are talking with Peter. Let's get a quick intro from him and then jump into the full conversation. Hi, I'm Peter Scott. I help people understand how we need to come together to own the future to survive and thrive through a future of exponentially advancing technology, especially artificial intelligence. Okay, so a few more words before we actually start this whole podcast off. In case you would like to learn more about what we are doing at Are You a Robot, we've created a whole Slack community that I encourage you to jump into. If you like what we're talking about here and anything resonates with you, come on in, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on and what you're passionate about around AI and ethics and data governance, all of that good stuff. Last but not least... We've got an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade is doing some really amazing things around ESG benchmarking. They're an ESG ratings firm that specifically is focused in on the data governance and the AI ethics programs of companies. So if you're not familiar with ESG ratings, that is when you study a company and the non-financial impact that it has on the world around it. Ethics Grade has come up with a whole scorecard of ways that they can look at the AI ethics programs or data governance programs of different companies such as Twitter or Facebook or Tesla or Toyota, you name it. They've got scorecards created for every one of these companies, which you can go and download for free. I encourage you to go and check that out because you will see who is actually doing what they say they're doing or who has a really good PR company. So that is ethicsgrade.io. You can check out the whole website by clicking the link below. And that's about all we got. Let's jump into the conversation with Peter. Are you a robot? Peter, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk to you about trying to bridge the gap between those that are creating technology and very influential in the tech spheres and bringing everyone else with us uh, who don't necessarily think about tech all day. And I know that you dive into that quite a bit and you've just written a new book. I really would appreciate it maybe to hear about your story of how you came to be where you're at and why you think about these different things. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show, Demetrius. And I I think if, if my high school had had a yearbook, um, which it didn't because it was in England decades ago, but a yearbook is as you know, an American tradition for, for decades, underneath my picture, mm -hmm. it would have said, least likely to be talking to you on this show right now, <laughs> uh, because I was a, a complete nerd. I was very much into math and subsequently computer science. And since no one knew the term Asperger's syndrome uh, at the time, uh, they settled on weird as the, the next best thing. It was difficult 
And with that kind of background, uh, naturally, I ended up doing a computer science degree at Cambridge and naturally I ended up working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California on mm. space navigation and other cool stuff, and none of which suggested that I would eventually be speaking in public. And in fact, in high school, any, the only attempt that I made at that was labeled by the teacher as the worst he'd ever seen. So it was about a decade before I tried that again. But two things happened to change that trajectory. One of them was that in realizing how inefficient processes could be at technology companies like where I was, as a result, not of the technology that we were using or the processes we were using to develop that, but of human aspects, people communicating. Project could fail completely because two people didn't get along or didn't mm. communicate right. That prompted me to go on a journey of self-discovery through a lot of personal discovery workshops and groups and then become a coach because coaches help people get better at that sort of thing. And so I was doing that at the same time. So that put me in the right place but then there was a question of where to go from that place. And that happened after I had children. Mm. And they provided the motivation for me to get out there and start talking about this because I realized from this dual background of technology and human development that we need to bring both of those together at both Right now, in the workplace today, it will produce immediate benefits. Neither side appreciates fully the other. And in the future, that the survival of the human race depends upon this integration, if you will, of the heart and the head. Mm. I appreciate the persistence in your ability to continue getting up there and speaking and public speaking. I know that is very difficult. And for a lot of people, it is one of their greatest fears. So we are glad <laughs> to have you and glad that you continued with that. So I want to talk to you about something that I saw on your website. And it is this idea of how in your book, it is really your book is for people who are willing to face unpleasant facts and they're willing to face them head on, as you say. Speaking of what you just spoke about, of how merging the mind and the heart and looking at these unpleasant facts, I'm wondering, just out of curiosity, what exactly are these facts that you're speaking of? There are so many conversations that we can have about artificial intelligence. And, and that is one of the things that attracts me to it enormously because I can span the whole field of human endeavor. I can talk to anyone about it and have talked to a great many people from uh, middle schoolers to senior citizens. And the, the, the conversations that we can have, as I said, range from here and now what you can do to improve your business uh, 
positioning to the future where artificial intelligence will reach a point where one of two things has to happen. Uh, it's either very, very bad or very, very good. Hmm. And you can find this reflected in a lot of conversation about that in the public sphere from visible, highly recognizable features like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis saying that we're heading for a glorious future where AI helps us become immortal. And others like Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, and Bill Gates saying that AI could spend, spell the end of civilization. And I want to help people understand how to balance those because really when you're talking to futurists, you would really like them to have the act together a, a bit more on this, okay? Not be as far apart as you can possibly get on, on the matter. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if anyone was confused about that because it's, it's frustrating to be given these polar opposite messages and not know who to trust. Now, my belief is that the answer is it depends on us. And we're not used to making that kind of prediction where we have to put ourselves in it, where the answer is it depends. But there is this, I think this is the opportunity that is the pivotal moment for the human race. We see things like this in climate change, of course, but it's in artificial intelligence. This is like fate calling us and saying, are you ready to step up? The, the challenge isn't going to come for maybe decades, but it will take you that long to get ready for it. And at that point, artificial intelligence will be as smart or much smarter than we are. And will we at that point have matured to the level where we can coexist with it, where we can handle that tool. Like, you know, you give a, a chainsaw to a toddler, odds are that they're not going to cut down a tree, that they're going to cut off their leg. Hmm. And that's the situation we're going to be in. So can we grow up so that we can take advantage of the enormous possibilities that that offers us to transcend who we are right now through that level of, of technology? Hmm. What do you think it is about humans that make us need to go further and get to that point like you're speaking of where artificial intelligence is that very, very omniscient presence or just very smart in its way and better at us than everything? What is it that because I was just thinking as you were talking how why as a human race will we never stop this forward progress when it comes to AI? Like if I were to say, okay, we got to this point and then we said, we're good. We're not going to continue advancing or trying to advance. That's just not going to happen. And we don't know what is going to happen, but I'll tell you, that's probably not going to be it, save some kind of crazy event that happens and, and gets to us first. But I don't think it's going to be us humans that put on the handbrake first. Mm. So what is it exactly 
about humans do you feel that makes us want to do that? Wow, that's a very interesting question, Demetrius. It's, it's really getting at the inner motivations of us collectively. One researcher in AI said the reason he does this is that the more he learns about AI, the more he learns about himself. Because in AI, fundamentally, the goal is let's build another version of ourselves. Let's, let's see if we can do that. Maybe we feel like we don't have enough company. I don't know. The, um, the, but your, your, your question there is, is really, I think, getting at the, one of the dichotomies, the um, conflicts that we have as, as people is that we want to progress. We want to be the first ones up Everest. We want to be the first ones to stand on Mars just because it's there. You, you, you can't be human and not look out there and say, I wonder what it's like over there. Let's go find out. And, and that's what we, we, we do with artificial intelligence. It's just that sometimes when we get over there, we mess things up. I'd use a stronger word, but I don't know what the audience is. The, um, we, we, we have that part of our nature as well. And, and so... These, these, these dynamics are in constant uh, competition with each other. Will we create a future that is better for us or will we mess that one up? What if artificial intelligence could be the thing that helps show us how to not mess that one up, how to, not, how, how to make that be the next step of our evolution? Hmm. Well, I love the idea that you were talking about is how, how immature we are when it comes to these tools or immature in our thinking and our understanding of the tools and their possibilities and their capabilities. Maybe we could dive into that a little bit more on how you feel we can become more mature, more mature and more self-aware so that, like you said, when this time eventually does come, whether that's in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, we're ready for it. Well, that takes more of what I became a coach for. That's what coaches do. And one of the things that frustrates me is that there's no obvious mechanism for doing that on a a big scale. We can do it one-on-one, -on -one, we can do it with groups, teams, but doesn't scale past, say, 100 people at a time. And the, 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 the kind of opportunity that there, there could be in the future for us to scale what's good about us through technology is, is really fantastic. I mean that in the literal sense of, oh my gosh, I don't believe that. And, mm. and when we have disruption, that shows the example of how we can transcend that. For instance, about a year ago in the pandemic, everything going sideways, right? Now, one of the things that emerged from that was actually the biggest supercomputer in the world at that point last April 2020, was not one that was produced by the Japanese who like to build really big computers. 
going from the K1 to the Fugaku, was not the IBM summit, but by a factor of two, the biggest supercomputer on the planet was the Folding at Home Network, which was a distributed computing system comprised of millions of machines that people around the world had signed up to be part of this network for solving protein pro folding problems, which are hideously computationally difficult, to help find cures for COVID. Yeah, and, and so that. we came together globally, and that's just one tiny little way which we, we, we showed that to, to produce that effect. And, and when you see, like as a coach, and you're working with someone and you see the light bulb go on and you see the, the, the kind of, of change that can come about from people going from all different directions to let's go in the same direction at the same time. It's like the difference between a candle and a laser. And, and I dream of the possibility of what that could look like on a global level because we are so inefficient compared to what's possible there, that if we realized a fraction of that potential, problems that are existential right now would, would be solved overnight. Climate change, mm. gone, poverty, sickness, hunger. They, they, those would be trivial if we could only get it together. So can you talk about how you balance that idea of us going together, working together for this common cause with another idea of the, I'm not, I, the word I'm, I want to say is dissonance or just critical, the being critical about something and not blindly accepting whatever comes your way. Right. Uh, well, one of the questions I often get asked, and thank you for not actually asking it, was, am I an optimist or a pessimist And <laughs> on this? And my answer is both of those are based on uh, an irrational uh, assessment uh, or reaction to something, and I'd rather make a realistic assessment. So can you rephrase the question? Yeah, the idea here in my mind is, you're talking about how collectively if we can harness the power of all of us together and and going from this candle to a laser, like you mentioned, which I, I appreciate that visual cue. I just wonder how you can balance that with making sure that there are, there is proper uh, pushback and you don't just have yes men around you or yes women or yes people around mm. you. And so that it is, there is the diversity in the opinions and everything. And, and also just along that point, harnessing the collective intelligence and being able to go into that very powerful mode that you're talking about, like the laser the, right. um, yeah, yeah. Basically, how how can we how can we balance these two, and what exactly does that mean for the the whole way that we make decisions and and organizationally achieve things? 
Mm. Well, commonality of purpose doesn't mean commonality of belief. It means we agree to come together to support this goal. And in an organization, to pull it down to that level, you often have different parts working against each other, uh, sometimes quite consciously, run through a few Dilbert strips, you get the idea. And they're working off hidden agendas and other things that are part of a dysfunctional corporate culture. When that can be surmounted at the cost of some personal vulnerability and risk-taking and uh, open communication, then you can be more transparent and say, who are we? And come to some agreement about, about that. And, and I think that's part of the answer to what you're, you're talking about here. Because fear is what drives not only conflict, but yes, man. People are saying yes because they're afraid of what? Afraid of losing their job if they don't say yes. And we're entering an environment, an era, where there's going to be unprecedented uncertainty about the future of our jobs through automation. We can, again, it's like this Rorschach test. What do we do with it? It's, it's holding up a mirror to us. Do we descend into fear? Do we try and wipe out the competition? Or do we use it as an opportunity to say, well, who are we anyway? What business are we in? What is our purpose? Because that's the, the conversation that will forward all the other activity. It's just in the same way that Kodak, for instance, actually invented the digital camera. Now, that doesn't seem logical unless you actually know that because of what happened to them. But the, that part of the company was not controlling the vision and the vision of that company and its purpose was wrapped up in long, thin pieces of plastic. They couldn't let go of that. Had they come together and said, these people here have given us an opportunity to look into a future here. Can we see a role for us beyond the long, thin pieces of plastic that still we have some connection to, like giving people access to a record of their memories. That's a conversation that many more of us are going to be have to, having to have as a result of what artificial intelligence does to automation. If you're bound up in the idea of being an accountant, that is being chipped away at from different directions. Get a solid idea of why you're in that business and where you can contribute in ways that are not immediately automatable, for instance. Hmm. Those conversations that you're speaking of, what are those? It's, it seems like you mentioned it at the end there, looking at ways that you can add value that cannot be automated. What are some of these other conversations? Because it is, it's very interesting to think about Kodak and how if they had those hard conversations, they could have potentially peeked behind the veil and seen the future and rode the wave. But they were a bit stubborn and decided to stick with what they know and what was making them money. And you're not going to kill the cash cow that you have. And then 20 years later, they ended up having to file for bankruptcy or they went out of business. I, I don't know exactly how they went out of business or, or what uh, the full aspect of that is, but those conversations, how can we be having them now? 
Mm. And and what are those conversations? I think is the other part of that question. I think having a culture of reinvention is is one way to to keep that going. Otherwise, it's it's generally more painful. Like someone who hasn't been through coaching in any form before is often challenged uh, and uncomfortable in the first experience of that until you learn to paradoxically become comfortable with being uncomfortable. You realize that's a cue that you're uh, on the verge of, of some discovery and advancement. And, and so introducing that element into a, a, a company will create the, the ground for those conversations to happen, allowing the input from many people to be heard instead of assuming it has to come from the top all the time. Uh, there are uh, so many ideas. Even Walmart does this. I mean, there was that, that there, I mean, it, it happens in perhaps different ways from what we've been talking about so far, but they solicit the input from throughout the company. And in one example that became part of their corporate law, everyone can get behind their vision, right? Whether you think it's transformation or not, it's cut costs. That's it. The janitors can understand that. And when one person on a, a loading dock said, you know what, we could save money if we use pencils instead of pens for writing the stuff down that we, we have to do. And they did that. And they switched pens, pens to pencils so that the organization saved something like $2,000. But they, they, they did it. But the important thing was that they listened and people felt that they had an ownership in the process. Whereas you can have companies of much higher levels of engagement, like financial services, where people at the lower rungs don't feel included. Mm -hmm. So those are the two elements there of, of, of how you can start building a culture towards the point where it embraces this idea of in, introspection and, and also looking at where, it, where are we going in the future. You, you can't afford to take a static view any longer. You've got to look around and go, whoa, what's happening? So you're speaking of culture within the business. I also wonder about culturally within society. How do you feel we could have these conversations? Wow. Uh, that is such a great question because every time someone mentions national conversation, I wonder, where is that? Is this just something that happens to show up on all the headlines of the tabloids at the same time? Is that what you mean? It was more obvious perhaps 30 years ago in that if it showed up on the four networks nightly news at the same time, you could call it a, a, a national conversation and then they would have it on PBS on Sunday and, and, and you would feel that there was some sort of closure, but not now uh, because of just this millions of different channels coming at us. So getting something into the, the, the popular culture looks a lot like a food fight and, um, and, 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 or mud wrestling. You really have to get kind of down and, and grubby to, to, to start having something heard. But occasionally it becomes inspirational, like Greta Thunberg created this conversation just through who she was and the 
Parkland teenagers, the school kids who survived the mass shooting, created conversation through a decision to take ownership of the future. So I, 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 I don't have any, an answer to the elements of, of, of how you go from A to B in producing a, a, this, this large conversation, but I think it starts with courage because those are two examples there of great courage. Mm. Yeah, that is a great point. And looking at potential disasters or, or problems and trying to find light and bring them forward and say, hey, we can do this better. There's a way that we can make this better than it has been going or than we feel it's going to be going or it's continuing to go. So one thing that you talk about a bunch that I've seen is this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. Can you break that down for me? Because I was a little bit confused. I guess the third revolution is the internet and mm -hmm. technology as we know it. We have had these great industrial revolutions, starting with steam power, which amplified our ability uh, countless fold uh, to extend our hands and uh, our, our legs, if you will, to uh, create this amplification of force. Then the next industrial revolution was electronic uh, use of electricity in lighting and uh, telegraphs. And then we had uh, digital communication. We had the computer. We had the computer revolution, which amplified our power of thinking, uh, which then evolved also in second half into the internet revolution and the uh, ability to create, to, to communicate instantly. And I, I just think it's, by the way, it's, it's amazing that here we are in an era where I can get the answer to almost any question that, that anyone else on the world, on the planet knows the answer to in a few seconds, even right now, by saying the name of the little hockey puck shaped thing sitting next to me <laughs> and asking that question for fear of yes yeah, triggering yeah, yeah. It. she'll she'll get in on 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 the, the show um <laughs> and get that and and whereas 40 years ago that was utterly fantastic science fictional kind of of, of thing I can, I can get that now and, and and i just find it amazing that that level of of transformation of our ability to know things hasn't resulted in nearly the, the transformation of, of the world that you would have thought 50 years ago, oh, if we had that, wow, it's going to look like something out of the Jetsons. It, it doesn't. I, I think it's that there's something interesting in, in, in how we're able to absorb this enormous change um, without making it as, as impactful as we might think. But I haven't fully processed that one yet. Hmm. And there's something else. So then the fourth revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, I imagine is where we're going. And how do you see that? And what is that exactly? Right. And we have 
a lot of exponential technologies at the moment and anything that is based on digital computing is advancing exponentially, has been since at least 1940. You can draw the graph back earlier than that if you want. And there are lots of analogies with exponential growth that you can look at. I won't take the time right now because you can look them up, but one of them is the, the chessboard. Ray Kurzweil talks about being on the second half of the chessboard. What does he mean by that? Well, there's this uh, old analogy about putting a grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard, two on the second, th four on the next one, keep doubling. And by the time you get to the end of the first half of the chessboard, you have two to the 32 grains of rice, which is about the size of a, a largish field of mm. rice in terms of yield. But that's still within our experience, right? So 32 doublings of rice, we're still in the ballpark of what's in our realm of experience. But things in the natural world don't double more. 30, more than 32 times as a, 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 as a rule. Now, past that, this is where it gets bizarre. And by the time you get to the end of the chessboard, you have enough rice to cover the whole country of India, which where this legend starts, the, the story, to a depth of one meter. It would, or if it was on the chessboard, it would stretch for a, a quarter of a light year. Now, wow. that second half of the chessboard, those doublings there are what produced this amazing transformation. And that's where we stand now with respect to the doublings of computerized technology. We're in the second half of the chessboard. And each one of those doublings is going to result in this enormous change. And, and, and now here's, here's one of the mind-blowing things about this, this era. It's producing this effect in so many different technologies. Your smartphone has a level of technology, even in 2010, it had more uh, computing power in than NASA did in every mainframe it had put together. Now it's a, a hundred times that capability. But in 30 years, at the current rate of exponential growth, it will have as much computing power as Google does now, the entire mm -hmm. company. Now, that is mind-boggling when you think about how much server power they have and you holding that in your hand. But there's no reason at the moment why the technology shouldn't get to that point. But that's not even the second most impactful or fantastic thing that I want to say about that. Because the next one is, now imagine how much power Google has at that point, at the same level of scale. Mm -hmm. We are talking about computing power being as ubiquitous as trees. That's, I mean, I can't fathom the consequences of that, and yet mathematically that is 30 years away. That is rev as revolutionary as it gets, right? And then consider, well, what do we do with, we don't need to hold Google in our hand not when we have instantaneous connection to the cloud. We can condense what we need down to the size of a grain of rice. And that would be kind of hard to keep track of, right? You would keep losing it. Um, so, but we can embed them in our heads. That would be the logical place to put it. Uh, 30 years from now, we'll have cracked the problem of communication with the brain. So the, we'll be communicating 
instantaneously with the cloud and therefore each other. And that is a transformation of our experience that could lead the human race from the candle to the laser. Huh. The ability to, to be in that simultaneous communication at the speed of thought with as many other people as you want on the planet. Now, I know it sounds like we're really way out there, but frankly, the, the level of technology advancement that leads to that seems uh, entirely conservatively predictable. I, I think about that one and I wonder a lot because I practice quite a bit of meditation, which is a lot of trying to rope in my thoughts and bring it and be able to focus more clearly. And if we had something in our mind that was able to register all of the thoughts that are going on, I know that I have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of unconscious thoughts every day that I'm not even aware of. And so how <laughs> it is needs computer... an off switch. <laughs> yeah. It... You've got to be able to turn that thing off when you want. <laughs> exactly. How is it going to be that that's what I wonder about is like when you talk about cracking the the mind or being able to read the mind. And I know there is a lot of work going into this right now. And I've seen even back in I think it was like 2010 or 2011 devices that you could wear and you could think about a sphere and it would put a sphere onto a computer screen. And of course, everyone knows all of the hype that has been generated with Neuralink and all of that that's happening. I just wonder about that and how it will be executed because if the idea is, okay, I can think a thought and then it will send a message to my wife to pick up milk or something, that's great. But what happens when I think about that, but I don't actually want to send it and it's already been sent and <laughs> there's a whole conversation that's happened and it's like, hey, I didn't want to start that. It was too instantaneous. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the things that I think about. But when it comes to this idea of, everything, basically Moore's law or the, as you were talking about it, this chessboard and how things are growing at such an exponential rate. And then I think about what you were talking about before with, it's a little bit sad how we've taken such an incredible development of computing and information and the democratization of information and the ability for us to have something that is stronger than what NASA, NASA could have fathomed back in 30 years ago, we have that in our, in our hands. And how we haven't really capitalized on it or we haven't grown into it. It's like we're wearing a pair of shoes and there are parents' shoes. They're too big or something. We haven't grown into them yet. And... I look at what you're talking about and going back to Moore's law and or the chessboard and thinking how there was a lot of stuff back 30 years ago, I'm sure at NASA, that you were expecting to exponentially grow. And you were expecting that you would see certain things because of that exponential growth. And they never played out. Instead, we got left with what we have now, which is, <laughs> which is algorithms on Twitter and Facebook. And we probably couldn't have expected our lives to be 
anything like they are now. So as we look ahead in the future and we're kind of set on this idea that, well, due to the things growing exponentially, we can expect to see certain certain patterns and certain trends play out. Like you were talking about this computing power that we're going to have the potential of. I guess the question here that I'm trying to go for is where do you think there are places that if they did not grow exponentially could really leave a hole in this whole theory of things getting much more developed and being able to have that laser pointer mm. and and all of this that you're talking about? I, I think certainly in uh, national politics and uh, geopolitical conflicts, you can see the uh, elements of, of, of great disruption in the negative sense to implementing that future. Look at mm. what's going on in the Far East at the moment. Uh, I mean, you, you take a pick, China, um, party politics in the United States. It, it's, it, it's, it's disheartening to read those, those headlines. And, uh, and, and then think, well, how are we going to integrate that with a, a future where we will be handed this technology? And exactly, it's like being given the chainsaw. Are you the toddler or the lumberjack? Hmm. It, it's, it, it, it's hard to see that. It, it is encouraging to see how many organizations and people are realizing what we're talking about now. You can find dozens now of institutes and think tanks like Center for the Study of Existential Risk, Center for the Future of Intelligence, uh, Future of Humanity Institute, those of uh, just in England, and uh, Future of Life Institute, Good AI, Open AI, uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, um, the Silomar uh, Conferences, on and on, there are organizations and people coming together who are realizing what we're talking about and asking how do we, we make this, this difference? How do we bring back? Because I know a lot of people are listening to this and going, that's great. Um, so I, I know that we've been talking about things that I used to think were a thousand years in the future. Now you tell me they're 30 years away. Okay, fine. But that still doesn't help me with what I've got to do uh, next week with quarterly sales, but all of this can be brought back to that, that, that microcosm of can you in that act of what you have to do to ensure the bread on the table, the next quarterly sales figures, whatever you're doing, can you take that next step towards that future where we have to be collectively ready to handle that level of technology and, and, and because if you can't, then it doesn't end well. And, and that's why I, I, uh, I say this is something where we have to all be in this together. Don't expect that this is going to magically appear as a result of someone else or our leadership getting us there. Doesn't look like it. And due to the current climate of not only politics, but just society 
and how you're speaking of, this is something where we need to all be in this together. And then we look at the information that is out there. And of course, you have what you spoke about earlier, these two, the dichotomy with people saying that it could be an incredible future with AI involved. And then you have others saying that this is one of the major threats to society. How do you feel like we can all get on board with this when there is that split? And in a way, from different camps, you have polarization on what to expect. Mm. Well, uh, that feels like one of those questions where the answer should be, if I knew that, I would, <laughs> I would be master of the world. I, I, I don't. There are a lot of things we need to know the answers to that we, we, we're not close to. Like, when are we going to have artificial general intelligence? If we knew that, if we could predict that with a degree of believability, a lot of this would get a lot easier, hmm. right? If we could say, yep, 17 years from now, we will have human-level consciousness. Here is why. Uh, we could do a lot more with that, but I can't knock it. I can't limit that to between five and 500 years. The... Um, and, and so what I say about that is if we are not at the level yet of having the right answers, then let's make sure we're at the level of having the right questions and, and, and that we can say, well, what, what are the things that we should be asking ourselves? What are the, uh, the introspections, the, uh, self-discoveries that we should be making to prepare ourselves. Like if I said, tomorrow I am going to kidnap you uh, because you joined this Explorers Club and this is part of the initiation and we're going to drop you off in some random part of the world uh, naked um, with a, a knife and a, um, a bottle of water. Good luck. Uh, and you don't know whether that's going to be the Amazon or an iceberg uh, or a desert. Now, you can't prepare. You don't know what the answers are. But maybe you can ask some useful questions. Maybe you can ask of yourself, um, what do I need internally to handle that level of uncertainty so that I don't, so that I have all of my resources available to me. This is one of the fundamental principles of coaching is be able to bring your best self to a situation so that you're not shooting yourself in the foot unnecessarily. So you ask that question. You might also ask, why the heck did I join this club in the first place? But, <laughs> that was the one I was going to say. Yeah. Um, but, but that's kind of the situation we're in, is prepare ourselves. When you, when you ask it at that level, I, I can only ask, answer it at, at this level. If we were to bring it to something much more specific like this company, this executive, then it gets different, but it also gets mm -hmm. much more narrow interest. <laughs> well, I appreciate you bringing up that question because I was, I was very close to interrupting you, but I had to bite <laughs> my tongue because I think that would have been a lot of people's first question. Uh, however, I am a huge believer in the quality of questions. And I like this insight from you that you're talking about. Well, if we don't know the answer, at least let's try and figure out what kind of questions we need to be asking. Right now, do you feel there are certain questions that we should be asking of 
the current development of AI and, and machine learning? Mm. Uh, well, I, I would like to, as I uh, alluded to, see us get a better handle on, on when we might have artificial general intelligence, when we might have computers that can reproduce human thought. And I think that we have the hardware for that right now. We just haven't figured out the software. And and it will clearly take breakthroughs of unknown magnitude to get there. But I, I think that we should spend more time working around the edges of that to see, well, can can we can we be smart enough to 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 get some bounds on that? Can we ask ourselves, well, what would it look like a year before we had that? At least that would give us some um some warning. Uh-huh. Maybe we could ans- answer those questions. Question. You know, Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity of the point at which um, the rate of change becomes effectively infinite because it exceeds our ability to perceive it. And singularity is a term that invites an interpretation of it being precise because that's what a physical or cosmological singularity is. It has a, a very sharp edge. And so I would like to ask him, so what would it look like at three hours before that? happened or or two two and a half days before just so i know um and and so part of that uh, the answer there what what questions can we get smarter about is 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 can we um make more predictions about the uh, arrival of diff of, of certain advanced levels of, of cognition so they'd take us by less surprise hmm so you said something really interesting to me there because it is about the computing power that we have. And you mentioned you feel we have the computing power, but we don't have... So we have the hardware, we just don't have the software to replicate human thought. And I also feel like we probably don't have the understandings of what's actually going on between our ears to replicate that. So there needs to be that understanding first uh, or better understanding of what is happening in, with our own consciousness. But it goes back to what you were talking about earlier where if we look ahead and we start moving along on that chessboard and we're continuing this exponential growth and we're getting all of this computing power, is it really going to matter if we don't figure out this software piece? Hmm. There are some people that think that enough hardware uh, will produce uh, human-level consciousness, human-level thought, uh, artificial general intelligence with our current techniques of deep learning, that it just needs more power. And we are throwing more power at it. Artificial intelligence models double in size every three months, starting to consume a significant fraction of the world's electricity. Uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, I, there are fundamental differences between the ways that deep learning makes connections and what's apparent about the human brain does it. That, it, and, it and it certainly isn't necessary for artificial general intelligence to precisely reproduce the way that the human brain does it. There are more ways of doing that. That People talk about this analogy of does a submarine swim? Um, does an airplane flap its wings? Mm-hmm. Neither of them is a, a 
mechanical evolution of a fish or a bird, but they get the job done in by, by some metrics better than those things do. So we don't have to necessarily copy the human brain in order to do that. But a lot of people think we're not going to figure it out unless we can see how the human brain does. Hmm. Yeah, and the idea of, of the hardware just replicating and then throwing more GPUs or CPUs at the problem, I really wonder sometimes if that is the answer. Like you're talking about how some people think, yes, we get to a certain point, we have so much computing power that it doesn't matter. We're going to be able to do whatever we want. And I'm still skeptical about that. I, w I wonder if that is the answer, if we need more understanding. Or like you said, I think you put it perfectly, the software side of things. How can we make sure that we're spending as much time trying to get that to grow exponentially and advance at the exponential rate as we are with the hardware side of things. So, mm. yeah, and go one, ahead. One, uh, when computers learn how to write programs, and the examples of that happening right now are, are, are too trivial and narrow to, to, to be worth in putting in that sentence. But when computers learn how to write the software, that's, in my opinion, the point at which the singularity happens, because then you no longer have to have a room full of people, people, uh, of uh, people, pizzas and Pepsi uh -huh. to develop the, the software. It will happen orders of magnitude faster. And so the, the rate of, of development will, will take off in this hockey stick there. And, and and that could be the, the thing that leads to that development. One of the tropes in science fiction, we did a show about this recently, uh, science fiction and AI. Well, one of the tropes in science fiction about AI is that us developing an, an intermediate AI that's smart enough to realize that it could design a much better one and tell us how to do that. And if you think about it, the... Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was actually doing the same thing. Deep thought computer realized it wasn't smart enough to compute the thing that was asked for, so it designed an even bigger computer, which turned out to be the Earth. <laughs> so speaking of your podcast, I would love to know what are some of the main things that you've learned while interviewing all of these great guests and what are some key takeaways that you could share with us? Uh, in, in terms of meta-learning, I, I learned people can be uh, really generous with their time and that I was able to, to do it and, and, and be a host that, were, that people would listen to, <laughs> largely with the help of a really good audio guy that uh, edits out a lot of my flubs. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. And the, but it, it has reinforced for me what I've learned from so many other uh, speaking engagements that AI covers this incredible breadth of of subjects, and that people are engaged with it 
in, in the same way wherever I go and whoever I, I talk to, they're engaged with these questions that you have been bringing up of what is our future with it? What will our jobs be like? How will society function? How will we relate to each other? Where will the... Uh, where will we fit in this hierarchy if there are other creatures that can think better than us at that that time? The people are, are drawn to those questions and the the, the podcast explores those in, in, in every way. That I like to just go all over the place from how do you use AI for doing X in your company to what has science fiction said about this or what the philosophers have to say about the, the, the problem of consciousness. It all fits together. It's just amazing. The thing that, that threads all of these together is artificial intelligence and us. Hmm. I talk with all kinds of people all, all over the place from understanding, deep understanding of what is going on with machine learning and AI to only those or people that only understand what they've been hearing in the news or hearing in the popular media hype to people that have no idea of what is happening with AI and that they're interacting with it. And so when it comes to these, this broad spectrum, is there anything that you feel like we all should know and we all should mm -hmm. keep in mind as we move forward through life and through life with AI. Right. And absolutely. And this is part of a message that uh, I, I carry through my uh, classes where I have a chance to spend hours with people and uh, going through a particular trajectory. Uh, and now in the podcast, as we've we've spent so much time now on the first anniversary, and the what I want people to understand is that you own the future, and if you haven't realized that, it's it's time to take responsibility for it. In the same way that Greta Thunberg is saying, take responsibility for the future of our climate that is within your hands. To, to do that. Taking responsibility for our future with technology is everyone's job. Yours, mine, everyone's. And that the first step is in realizing that we hold that power. Of course, with great power comes great responsibility, the responsibility to look around and see what is happening, to find out where we are going and to ask yourself, do I like this direction? And to say, well, where can I find others that are uh, of like mind that are also concerned about whether we're adopting the right practices, whether we're putting humans first, our people first, in our companies, our families, our communities, and, 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 and so it's that concept of ownership, of, of taking responsibility, instead of feeling like you're a, a pinball on the board uh, of machine that's being manipulated by some unknown entity 
And of course, there are, there are governments, there are corporations. But we've seen how it's within our ability to shift the needle on those things when we come together. It is, we are capable of so much more in that respect, and we're going to need to be. So I, I, my message is, look, this might sound like uh, a hippie kind of thing, like, oh, cool, enough of us could levitate the Pentagon if we really put our minds to it. <laughs> um, that wouldn't be, that would be optional, right? But this is not. The future, if we don't take responsibility for it, will go in a direction that we don't like. It's going to take all of us coming together. We've got to start somewhere. This is the first step. Hmm. Brilliantly put. So Peter, I have one last question for you. This is one that I like to end with, and it is, are you a robot? <laughs> oh, well, the, uh, there will come a point in the future where uh, we might even be proud to, to say that. We're not, we're not there yet, of course. I'm sure that uh, a lot of people have said, how can you tell? But the, we, we've come to associate that term robot with robotic, meaning pretty much what I started out with, the Asperger's and, and that. And in that respect, I could say that a, a lot of my life was based on that aspect of robot, because that's where it came from. It's one of the words that... Uh, people with Asperger's can be described with. I feel comfortable saying that, but I've now integrated that. So mm -hmm. the answer is in part, yes. In part, yes, a robot. But I have merged the robot on and the human. And that's like a microcosm of what we need to do as the human race. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on here, Peter. This has been fascinating to talk with you and I really appreciate you being patient with me uh, because there was a lot of things that I had written down that I wanted to ask you and I threw them all out because of the <laughs> way that this conversation ended up going. I was improvising a little bit and so you were a great sport on working with me with these questions and, and I really appreciate it. For everyone out there listening, Go check out Peter's book. Go check out his podcast if you like this at all. And that's all we've got for today. Thank you again, Peter. Thank you, Dimitras. <laughs>